Um, and uh, today we are going to talk about uh, how the how patent pending status can be extremely valuable. And Tom has a really great story about this that uh, you gave me the the quick version of it a little while ago, and I'm excited to to hear the longer version of it. Okay, so the quick version was like 45 seconds. Right. The longer version will be like five or 10 minutes. Okay, perfect. So let's do that. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, patent pending. That's what we're talking about. So, so you get a patent, right? And you have the power to ex prevent others from making, using, selling, or offering to s sell your patented technology if you have a patent. Uh, the problem is it takes like three years before you get a final determination on whether your invention that you've applied for patent protection for will be actually patentable and become a, an issued patent, right? So, so what happens during all that three years? You know, is there any value that you can get? And you can, there's something called patent pending. And there's a few kind of like direct value uh, points that you get. One is you can mark your products with patent pending. You can mark your services if they're patented or file, if you filed a patent application with patent pending. In fact, this is such a powerful deterrent to people when you mark your products with patent pending that there's actually a law against false patent marking. You actually are not allowed to mark a product or service with patented or patent pending because it's such a big deterrent. Because if I see a really cool product in the marketplace and I'm like turning it around and stuff to see if it's patented and I can't find any mention of it and then I go do a search and I can't find anything patentable about it, I could technically make a mold, start making it, copy it exactly as it is and start selling it in the marketplace and competing with, ever was make, with whoever was making that first product, right? Hmm. Because remember, a patent doesn't give you the right to do anything. It gives you the right to prevent other people from doing something, right? So if there's no patents, you can make, use, sell, offer to sell any products you want. But when a patent pops up, that's when you have to start to watch yourself because you can be prevented. So if you pick up that product and you see patent pending on it, you're going to go, wow, patent pending. That means they're probably going to get a patent on it any day now, any week, any month now. I'm not going to tool up and get myself all excited and gung-ho and spend a fortune to start making this and selling it in the marketplace if a patent's going to pop up in a few months or even a year and block me. So it's a really powerful status. So the story I was telling you today is that patent pending can also help you to get third-party investments. And here's what I mean. So back in 2000 or so, like 25 minutes before the dot-com crash, I had a business plan that I was seeking in, an investment for. So my business idea was to create an online, you know, an online marketplace for something called defensive publishing. And defensive publishing is essentially a way to publish innovation so that nobody can get a patent because it becomes prior art and it blocks patenting. So anyway, we had a, an idea to build a site where we would, you know, use, I guess it would be kind of like an early stage of blockchain to prove that this publication occurred on a particular date and time and was never altered so that people could use it as prior art. So instead of patenting, you might just publish with us. And that was our idea. But all we had was a business plan. We didn't have a product. We weren't in the marketplace or anything. So you're, Ray, you're too young to remember this, but... For those of you who, for those, you know, for those in the pool of millions who are watching our podcast, 
who might be old enough, you might remember that before 2000, people were getting investments based upon business plans, no products. You know, it was kind of a running joke that if you put .com after anything, you could get investment money. So anyway, in like 2000, again, just before the crash, I went to a VC to get an investment for this new defensive publishing business. And my pitch to the VC was, I will give you 20% of the business for a $7 million investment, which would have given us a post money valuation of $35 million, right? So I pitched the idea. They loved the idea. They didn't particularly like me because they said that I had no experience. I was just a lawyer. And they didn't like the fact that we were in Buffalo, New York, because they said all the cool companies are in like San Francisco, Silicon Valley area, Austin, Texas, maybe Boston, but certainly not Buffalo. But they loved the idea, right? So they, um, they said, you know, we really like your idea and we're gonna use your idea, but we don't need you because we'll put our own CEO in place and we'll do it in Boston or Austin or Silicon Valley and we'll make a killing because we really like your idea. Because the th reason they liked it so much is back in those days, everything, uh, every business model on the web for the most part was money for clicks. You know, it was all about monetizing eyeballs, right? There were no real models where people were selling stuff or there were, don't get me wrong, there were models, but most were all about eyeballs and monetizing, monetizing those eyeballs. So we had an actual annuity business on the web where people would publish with us, we would date stamp it, and then they could continue to pay us annuity every year or two years or three years. So they really liked it. So the problem was me, the problem was Buffalo. And the problem was we had no market traction. We had no product. All we had was a business plan, <clears throat> which they could easily replicate because I just gave it to them, right, in my pitch. So um, anyway, I should have had them sign an NDA, but that's probably a discussion for another day because they wouldn't sign an NDA because we were this big and they were bigger than I could spread my hands on the screen. So anyway, we, we went- that is a topic for another day. That's a topic for another day, exactly. So um, anyway, we went, I had a co, you know, a partner on this with me. We went to the meeting, they rejected us, but they said they might do it anyway. And they basically shuffled us out of the office. I mean, they didn't use security where, you know, the story, the shows where you grab them by the back of the collar or the back of the pants and you throw them out. Yeah. They didn't actually, and then they're tumbling outside. They yeah. didn't actually do that, but it was close. So anyway, we went back, right, right. We went back and filed seven patent applications the next week. So we now have seven patent applications filed. We've blocked the whole space, right? Yeah. So we went for a follow-up meeting with them and we showed them our seven patent applications and it was a very different meeting. Within no time at all, 90 days from that next meeting, they invested $7 million for 20% of a business that had nothing more than a business plan, no product. Mostly, mostly because of the patent applications. I say mostly because they really liked the business idea. They really wanted to be in that. They just felt that they couldn't be without violating our soon to be patents because we had patent pending status. We actually showed them our patent applications, our great claims and patent applications. But here's the goof with patent apps is you file a patent application with claims that are this broad. I want to go, I want my hands to go more broadly, but I can't go outside of the screen, but you get the idea.
But after prosecution, they might be this broad and they might have much less value, but you never know. You don't know when you're, when you're looking at patent applications. And their idea was, we want to be in this. We don't want to get mired in litigation. We're going to fund somebody, so let's fund you. So they ended up funding us, and then the dot-com crash occurred. Thankfully, we got the money before it crashed. But the punchline to the story is that of all those patent applications that we filed, only one issued as a patent. Six were finally rejected. One issued, and it's very narrow, right? So if we had gone to them with one very narrow patent and six rejected patent applications, they wouldn't have invested with us. But because we brought patent applications and they didn't know what was going to occur, our patent applications won the day and we were able to get the investment. So that's one of the great values of patent applications, which is why there's, you know, private investors, uh, private, you know, private equity investors, there's venture capitalists that are always asking companies to talk about their, their intellectual property story and they want to see their patent applications. Um, you know, now hopefully other companies will be more savvy and ask to see the prosecution history and see how far along they are and then do some searching and figure out whether you're actually going to be able to get any of those issued as patents. But certainly everybody is looking to see what you have filed before they invest money. That's very interesting. And that's a really crazy story. And to, I mean, in 90 days after that second meeting, you said? Meeting, we got a check days $7 later, million. A $7 million investment. See, they, they thought, oh, he's just a lawyer. But what they didn't know was, oh, he's a patent lawyer. lawyer. Exactly. Because exactly. the, the other thing there that's, that struck me too, and this is kind of a side note, is that you had that meeting one week and then the next week you filed seven patent applications. Oh yeah. We were working. That's no small feat. Yeah. You must've been working 24 hours a day for a week. Yeah. Well, luckily, like you said, I'm a patent lawyer. Right. And, and my, my um, partner, while not a patent lawyer was a savvy inventive guy who was really helping out with drafting disclosures, but yeah, it was a week. So, um, Punchline to the story, I guess the, or the moral to the story is patent applications matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And did you mention that it was three years that it takes for a patent to go through the review process? Yeah, it's usually in the U.S. The, uh, typically, it's like three years or so before you can finally be granted or finally be rejected. <clears throat> and it's mostly because during that time period, there's a lot of back and forth with the patent office and everything takes time. You know, just to get your initial response from the patent office could be, you know, six months to a year. And explain again how it works to get the patent pending status. Like, are there a certain qualifying criteria that your application has to meet or your invention has yeah. to meet? Yeah, you just file your patent application with the uh, patent office of the jurisdiction that you live in, UP, USPTO, the Chinese Patent Office, the um, Canadian Patent Office, <clears throat> you file. And once you have your filing date, you are patent pending. And in the US, like I say, you need to be that before you can put patent pending on your products. How do they prevent people from putting in patent applications for things that are obviously not patentable then though? Well, that's what some people do. They put in patent applications. I mean, if they're 
terribly not patentable, that's one thing. You have to have a, you know, the patent lawyer has to have a good faith belief that they can get a patent application successfully through the system. But there's companies that even if it's close and they're, they're you know, they get prior art that looks like it's going to be potentially damaging, they'll file anyway. And in fact, a lot of companies, they don't even do a search. They'll just file and, um, you know, let the patent office do their search, but then they could stamp it patent pending because sometimes their attitude is this technology is only going to be good for like 18 months. You know, even if I get a patent, I'll probably abandon it before that, but they have patent pending status. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, this is a, a might be a really obvious, be an obvious answer to this question, but every patent application has to have a patent lawyer's signature on it. No, you can file yourself. I mean, in oh. fact, USPTO, and now I'm just thinking about the USPTO. I don't know how helpful other patent offices around the world are, but I'm guessing that, you know, in, in uh, most countries, they're just as helpful. But there's actually a branch of the USPTO that helps independent inventors get through the patent prosecution system. Hmm. And then there's books out there too for, you know, patent, uh, inventors that want to file their own patent applications. Now, I wouldn't recommend it because, you know, writing a patent application is a bit of an art. You know, you are yeah, yeah, crafting. Yeah. I mean, think about it. A claim. Every word in that patent claim matters. You know, and, and by the way, if a patent is unsuccessful and 95% probably are, right? And when I say unsuccessful, you don't make as much out of them as you've spent to get them. But if it's a failure, no one cares. and You can file it yourself, right? It's like almost anything in business. If you're a failure, nobody wants to copy you. Nobody's going to sue you because right. no one cares. So if you have a patent application that you filed yourself and it's not great, you know, your claims aren't as broad as they could have been and you're a failure in the marketplace, who cares? But what if you're a smashing success in the marketplace, but you didn't draft your claims broadly enough to protect the product that you're in the marketplace with? Now you're going to be suffering, you know? It reminds me of people who write their own wills, you know? Oh, I'm going to write my own will. And then you're dead, and then the will's all screwed up. And right. stuff that you wanted to give to somebody doesn't go to that person because you haven't done the right things. So it's like whenever you try to take legal – I mean, think. imagine this. You are a plumber. You spend all your time doing plumbing. You're probably a pretty good plumber. And if you do it right, it goes smoothly and you don't have leaks everywhere. Right. It's kind of like that with any industry. But when you talk about patents, because they're so costly, it's so expensive to get them and so time consuming, to me, why would you ever try to do it yourself? It's not worth it. <clears throat> no, you're going to screw it up. You are, unless you're brilliant and you basically know enough to become a patent lawyer. Even young patent lawyers aren't good at it. Imagine that. Patent lawyers and patent agents have taken the patent bar. They have a science degree. They, yeah. When I first graduated law school and then I took the patent bar, I drafted a claim on the patent bar just so I could pass the patent bar, but I, wouldn't, I wasn't any good at it. So I'm, oops, sorry about that. I'm a patent lawyer. I'm a registered patent lawyer. And I'm still not good at drafting claims way back then, right? Sure. So yeah. now imagine you're not a patent lawyer, you know, and not even a lawyer. Draft your own, you're not even a lawyer, you know, you're going to draft your own claims. It's an art, you know, it took me years yeah. to figure out how to get good at it. And when I look at some early stuff that I did versus, you know, later in, in my career, it's a, it's a massive difference. So to me, 
I'd find a patent lawyer to draft your claims for you. You know, the way you can save money though, let me say this, the way you could save money is to have a very thorough disclosure, like have everything that the patent lawyer needs, because it's all about time, right? Abe Lincoln made a comment, which was a lawyer's time is his stock and actually his or her stock and trade. If Abraham Lincoln were around today, because I'm not sure there were any female lawyers in the 1850s and 60s, but now, but think about that. Your time is your stock and trade. So if you are only have one thing to sell, which is your time, well, if the inventor can save me time, it will cost the inventor less. So I wouldn't recommend drafting a patent application and filing it, but I would recommend thoroughly drafting your specification and um, getting all the information that the patent lawyer needs to then draft the patent claims and uh, file your patent application. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how uh, how this whole process works and just how both expensive it is, but also how beneficial that it can be to your business. But um, but yeah, so let's move on to uh, Space Force versus Star Trek. I'm excited to talk about this one because I love science fiction um, and I love uh outer space and <laughs> what about star trek do you love star I, I i never you're not a, a trekkie star trek was the only you know pop culture sci-fi series or movies that i just never got into um yeah. but i i respect it i do okay so i i am a bit of a trekkie i mean Ooh, okay i'm not a fanatical trekkie but I've watched every episode of the original Star Trek with, really? with James T. I Kirk. Never I watched, guessed. Yeah, yeah. Star Trek Next Generation with Jean-Luc Picard. One of my favorite shows of all time was Enterprise, uh, which was the 2000 version, which the in the timeline it predates James T. Kirk. And it has Jonathan Archer, like maybe the greatest character in any show ever made, is Jonathan <laughs> Archer of Enterprise. But, you know, I've watched Voyager, I've watched the movie. So, yes, I love Star Trek. But, so, this, you know, it's funny that every time we do a case in the news, it's always about, like, trademarks and stuff. Even though patents sure, are, sure. like, the most popular form of IP, but in the news, trademarks get all the buzz, right? Right. So, in this case, what's happening is, and maybe when we actually, when you edit this and put it up, you can put the actual logos yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I'll have yeah. them up okay. on the screen here. Cool. Because... So Donald Trump and his gang come up with, and, and when I say gang, I, I mean his administration. I'm not trying to be derogatory about Donald Trump because I'm not, I, you know, I'm not. But anyway, Donald Trump and his administration came up with the Space Force, okay, which is pretty cool. So they needed a logo for it. So when you look at the logo for Space Force and you look at the logo for Starfleet Command, they look almost identical. I mean, there's no doubt that somebody in that administration is a Trekkie because yeah. they have a logo that is a knockoff of yeah. uh, by, by, by the time we publish it, it's going to be on screen right now. And so yeah. you guys can okay. judge for yourself. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's really pretty cool. So anyway, I mean, if you're going to take a, a logo to create the Space Force, take Starfleet Command, right? Right. So anyway, and they did. They did. So, so anyway, so I saw this thing about – I think it was George Takai. What's his name? The guy who played a Han, or not Han Solo. Uh, yeah. Zulu. Um, Zulu. Uh, the George Takai, I think his name I is. Forget anyway, or some one of those guys, they said it was trademark infringement. And 
And of, of course, I immediately started thinking, you know, trademark infringement. Could it be trademark infringement? So the question is, when you're looking at these two logos, and Ray, hopefully you have them on the screen now, yeah. um, are they, is it trademark infringement? So, so I go through in my head, what are the basic things? Well, first of all, you know, are they confusingly similar? And they clearly are confusingly similar. You know, are they in the same industry? And the Starfleet Command is kind of like a Space Force, right? They provide Space Force services. And the Space Force is a Space Force services, right? So they're in the identical industries, right? They're both protecting somebody with Space Force. And so you'd think, wow, this could be trademark infringement. But then there's one fundamental problem, and that is you need to remember, trademarks only exist in connection with products and services that are being used in commerce, right? Right. It's hard to imagine how you can spin a fictional service like right. Starfleet Command as being used in commerce. You know, I can't buy that service. I can't go to, to um, what's his name? Who's, who's James T. Kirk? Um, I can't pull it. But anyway, uh, you, you, you know, we're going to pull up like, the Priceline guy now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> William Shatner. William Shatner. Shatner. Thank you. I yeah. can't go and get William Shatner to provide me a Space Force service with that yeah. logo. So there is no real service. It's artificial. It's not being used in commerce in connection with Space Force services. Right. So there's no trademark infringement. However there may be copyright infringement because, and, and I'm not a copyright expert, but I know you can copyright fictional characters, right? You could copyright Mickey Mouse. Well, Walt Disney could co did copyright Mickey Mouse and Superman and Spider-Man and uh, Batman. So why couldn't you copyright? That logo is owned by somebody as a copyright. Yeah. You know, the artificial Starfleet command. So- yeah. That could be a problem. But, you know, when you when you, we talked about it a few minutes before we started, I did a quick search to see about other fictional characters. And there's a great example. There was this company called um, Fortress Grand. And they have a, a product that's in the marketplace called Clean Slate. <clears throat> and Clean Slate essentially wipes emails out, right? It's like a wiping software. So there's also a movie called Dark Knight Rises. And Dark Knight Rises, I think, is by Warner Brothers. So Dark Knight Rises, is it Dark Knight Rises? I think it's, let me just see here. Dark, yeah, 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 that was, it's one of the Yeah, Dark Knight Rises. So Dark Knight Rises has a character, Catwoman, very attractive. But Catwoman has a criminal history. And Catwoman wants to wipe her criminal history clean from every database in the universe so that she can start a fresh life, I guess. Now, by the way, confession, I never saw Dark Knight Rises. So I'm just going by what the article said. But anyway, so Catwoman has to, you know, get this software from the Recon Data Corporation. And it's called Clean Slate. So Clean Slate, Clean Slates you. It wipes all the, you know, information about your criminal history from all the databases on the planet. So Fortress Grand sues Warner Brothers oh. for trademark infringement because they're using the term clean slate and they're worried that it's confusingly similar to the clean slate that they actually have in the marketplace. Right. But again, the problem is you have to actually be using a product or service in the marketplace to yeah. 
be committing trademark infringement. So the court actually said, you know, basically, I forgot the exact language in the thing, but it said, you know, what kind of bumpkins would think that that is a, that is a product that the Warner Brothers has licensed it and now they're selling it. It's just on the TV show. It's on the movie. There right. is no real rift. There is no real Riken data corporation and they're not selling a real slate cleaner that can help villains like Catwoman. I guess she's kind of like a quasi villain, right? To yeah. get a clean slate. So they held, I think it was the seventh circuit, seventh federal court circuit this went to, and they held that there was no trademark infringement. Wow. So that's our case in the news. Interesting. Yeah. And in that case, then it couldn't really be copyright infringement either. Well, because, interesting, because the real Fortress Grand is using it as a trademark. Right. So the question is, do they have any, or they're just using the word clean slate as a trademark. So they right. don't have a, it's not like they have a logo, like that cool logo from yeah. the Starfleet Command. Now, but if, if what if they, they had a logo? What if they had a cool yeah, logo? Yeah, use the logo. Maybe that's a copyright infringement case. Good point, Ray. Could be. Could All be. right. Yeah, the only way that uh, that that the Space Force lo- could have ripped off Star Trek more than <laughs> it already did is if they called it the the Starfleet Enterprise or Starfleet whatever. Command. Starfleet, Starfleet Command. Starfleet Command, yeah. yeah that, that's right. That's, you, when you look at the Space Force, it's Starfleet. And then it would just be like... Right, well, I saw this thing on the on the news, which has... Um, or not on the news. On, I just did a quick search on it. And it showed the two logos side by side. Then it showed Jean-Luc Picard side by side with Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now we got to stop before we get political because now yeah, we're yeah, exactly. upsetting exactly. half of our audience, right? Like, if you don't want to compare <laughs> a fictional leader with a real leader and what are the flaws and, and positives of each, right. you don't want right. to be doing that. Yeah, that no. Happens. No, we'll okay. skip that for, well, maybe next episode. We'll leave you on or, a cliffhanger. Or a different show altogether. Oh, yeah, a different show altogether. With, with perhaps different people in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, other than you and me, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, all right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks so much for sticking in with us here through our conversation about patent pending status, the Space Force, and Star Trek. Uh, if you liked what you saw and heard, please click the like button, subscribe, and tell people about our podcast, Stuff You Should Know About IP. See ya. See ya.